Well, good morning. On this pre-Thanksgiving Sunday, uh, I did have a thought. You do realize we're all about five or six pounds lighter this Sunday than we'll be next Sunday, right? So be encouraged. And um, that was supposed to be funny, but you are not awake yet. It'll be funny if you watch it on video. So uh, turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 5 as we continue uh, in our series in Isaiah. And um, let me do a quick review for us. First four chapters of Isaiah. Uh, God, through Isaiah, is coming to his people, and he is coming to them with truth and with warning. And he's coming to them trying to get their attention, and they are not listening. And as they've been unresponsive. And Isaiah chapter 5 is yet another attempt at God through Isaiah coming to his people so they can see what they have been doing. But this time it's a little unique attempt. It's, uh, it's, it's a different approach to the same problem. Because this, this, this front out, in your face, barrels blazing approach that Isaiah has been coming to the first four chapters hasn't worked. So here in chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, uh, they take the approach, or Isaiah takes the approach is very similar to when Nathan the prophet confronted David over his sin. If you remember the story in 2 Samuel 12, uh, that Nathan the prophet comes to David over his arrogance, his murder, and his adultery, and he comes with to David as if he has a problem in the kingdom. And there's this problem, and the problem is there is a, a rich man and a poor man. And a rich man has many, many, many herds of sheep, and the poor man has one sheep, one little lamb that his family actually treats as a pet. And Nathan tells this story to David and says a traveler came along and he was hungry, came to the rich man. The rich man refused to go get one of his many sheep and kill it and cook it and feed it to give to the traveler. But instead, because he's rich and powerful, took advantage of the poor man's sheep, took the little lamb that was so precious to him and killed it and fed it to the traveler. And it says that David burn with anger. And he said, that man deserves to die because he lacks compassion for the poor. And Nathan said, David, you are that man. And then the writer of 2 Samuel Response, thus says the Lord of God Israel to David, It is I who anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your care. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why, David, have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in my sight? 
You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife. You have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. So the Lord says to David, I've been so kind to you, so gracious to you, and you do that. That's the picture we have in Isaiah 5. David's own sin had made him deaf, dumb, and blind when it came to the kindness of God. And because of that, he suffered. Now we know that David was a man after God's own heart. He certainly, Psalms 51, repented in a beautiful way. We know that God still loved David. We know that God still ran his covenant son, Jesus, through the lineage of David. But David suffered. So let's go to Isaiah chapter 5, 1 through 7, to see how God revealed to his people how gracious he had been to them. So Isaiah starts out with, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and he cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and he hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, just between me and my vineyard, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall. It shall be trampled down, and I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that the rain that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, there was bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So, we have this, <laughs> God is, through Isaiah, is revealing how gracious God has been with his people. And in verses 1 and 2, what happens here, it explains the setting. If you notice, Isaiah starts to sing a song for his good friend about his friend's vineyard. Isaiah paints this picture of a man cultivating this beautiful, fertile land set on a hillside. A land we know is called a land of milk and what? Honey. This man, the picture he's painting, spent his whole life savings. He worked for years to build this beautiful vineyard. And it says very clearly, it says he removed the stones, which is a picture of God removing the Canaanites from the land of promise. 
moved them away, the pagan Canaanites. He said he planted a choice vine, the choice vine being Israel, that he chose her out of all the peoples of the earth to be his. Said he built a watchtower, a watchtower where a person would sit in to be the protector of the vineyard, that person being the very presence of God himself, metaphorically. He said he hewed out a wine vat, a wine vat was where grapes were crushed and the juice would flow. And here it means metaphorically, that is a metaphor for what God set up a sacrificial system that animals would be killed and the blood would flow to take care of the people's sins. And God says, after all that work and labor and care, I expected great grapes, sweet grapes, Beautiful fruit. And instead, this text tells us he got wild grapes. Literally, it means stinky grapes. It means rancid and rotten grapes. It's that grape you bite into, and it looks the same on the outside as the regular grape, but when you bite it, you go immediately, what do you do? You spit it out. No matter where you are, at home or in a fancy restaurant, you spit it out. Can't eat it. Won't eat it. Your kid bites it and says, that's nasty. No fruit. Worthless grapes. And then in verses 3 and 4, the writer here, as he continues it, so it sounds like a really nice song starting out, right? And then, then Isaiah as he turns this little approach here to Israel, trying to get Israel to see what they're doing, ask for a verdict from Israel. What more could I have done in verses 3 and 4? It says, I did everything a vineyard owner could do to produce incredible grapes. What else could I have done? I, I literally cut off my right left arm and both legs to make this a beautiful vineyard. I, I left no stone unturned, no dollar unspent, and I got rotten grapes. And then in verses 5 and 6, the owner gives his decision about what he's going to do with this vineyard that produced rotten fruit. He says, I'll not only, I not only won't invest in it, anymore, no more labor, no more money, but I'll also stop protecting it, if you notice the words. And I will abandon it, abandon it to its elements and to the enemies. It's a picture here, a little bit of Romans chapter 1. If you, if you know Romans chapter 1, it says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And three times in that text, 24, 26, verse 26 and 28 of Romans 1, Paul writes, therefore God gave them over. God gave them up. Now, if we're in Christ, that's a, look, that's a, if you know Jesus, that's a long, long tell on that. But sometimes 
God says, I'll give you what you want. Jeff, if you want to live that way, <laughs> if you want to go totally against everything I have done in spite of my kindness to you, I'll let you taste rotten grapes. I'll let you lose big in order to turn around and gain me for the long haul. And most of us sitting in this room who are totally committed to the Lord Jesus have experienced that at some level. And then verse 7, sort of the reveal, where Nathan said to David, you are that man. Isaiah reveals here, he makes it clear who he's talking about, and he says, Yahweh is the owner of the vineyard. And he says, the vineyard is who? Israel. The source of God's delight and the object of God's desire and his love and his care and his provision and his heart that he had for Israel, the one he had labored for, the one he had chosen of all the nations of the earth in order that she might look so completely different than all the other nations around her that those nations would look to her and say, why, why do you live so differently and God's people would say, because we know the one true God. And those nations would say, can we know him too? And now she looked just like them. God's choosing and caring for Israel was to produce the beautiful God-honoring fruit of righteousness and justice, but had instead produced sinfulness. God, in some ways, is saying in Isaiah 5, 1 through 7, I gave you my presence. <laughs> I gave you my prophets. I gave you my priest. I gave you my promises. And I expected godly fruit from your lives. And I got the opposite. Let me just make it real personal for all of us, I think. There have been times I got four kids, and I got some great kids, and I'm not a perfect parent. I know that shocks y'all. But I have worked hard, like most of you, in parenting, and I've worked hard not to be the parent that I grew up with. And I've invested deeply in my kids, and I've pursued my kids, and I've given them everything I thought they needed for life. And they turn around and do exactly opposite of what they should do. And it's hurt. And I felt the hurt. And it's like the Lord puts his arm around me and says, Really, bro? Uh, really? <laughs> I, Jeff, have given you <laughs> everything. And you've crushed me with how you've lived at times. Feel that? Well, I have nothing to say. Me and my kids, just alike. It's bent in us. So the question here is, for us, is why? Why are we not more fruitful in our character and in our lives?
What a great question to ask ourselves. We tell ourselves this, I think. If I only had more time, I would be, there'd be more fruit in my life. If I had a different spouse, if I were not single, if I didn't have the childhood I, had, I grew up with, if I had more money, if the culture was different, the culture just pounds me. If we had better presidential candidates, if those people would just act differently, then I wouldn't have to respond the way I do. These are all excuses that at the bottom line, they imply criticism of God. Because 2 Peter 1.3 says that God has given us all that we need. Let me read it to you. By His divine power, Peter writes, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know Him, the One who called us to Himself by means of His marvelous glory and excellence through the shedding of the blood of His Son. <laughs> I think of Romans 8. If we just had Romans 8, let, let me... Let me give you a skimming of Romans 8 just to remind us. Paul writes, you think how kind God has been to us as I read this. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. That one sentence is overwhelming. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to you, your mortal bodies, through His Spirit who dwells in you. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. And so we cry, what? Abba, Father. Seriously? Adopted as a son or daughter of the living, true God. Mind-blowing. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and the fellow heirs with Christ. For I consider, Paul writes, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's a promise. And we know that. For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. You know what that says? That says that not one bird falls to the ground without the God of heaven knowing about it. His eye is always upon you. He is not surprised. He is totally in control. He's using everything, everything to conform you and I to the very image of His beloved Son. And He goes on to say that, Later in Romans 8, and he ends up, for I am not sure that I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate from the love of Christ in Christ Jesus. That nothing in our behavior will separate us from Christ if we know Christ. Mind blowing. If Romans 8 was the only thing we could go to, to show us the kindness of God to us. It's too overwhelming to put into words.
the question is, what have you and I done with his outpouring of grace? Are we bearing the sweet fruit consistent with the beauty of grace given to us by God? God's people in Isaiah 5 have taken advantage of God's grace and His kindness to them. And what we know is grace really does empower life change when grace is heard, it is understood, and when it is seen. But when our ears are deaf and our minds are dumb and our eyes are blind, deaf, dumb, and blind to God's kindness, then what happens is we take advantage of God's grace. We abuse His grace. It is all grace with no truth, which equals license to sin and do as we please. And that's what Isaiah begins to address secondly in the next few verses. Point two says the abuse of grace. What does it look like? What does it look like to live as if grace has never touched us. Isaiah lays out six. Six clusters of wild grapes, if you would. He holds these six clusters up to Israel. And he goes through each one. And he said, this is how you have taken advantage of my grace and kindness to you. He starts with the word woe. In these six verses, verse 8, 11, 18, 20, 21, and 22, he starts off with the word woe. We need to understand this is both a curse and a lament. Isaiah is not only angry, he is angry, but he's also grief-stricken over the sins of God's people. So what's happened here, very Practically speaking, is under the reign of King Isaiah, there was prosperity and great power in Israel, and the people would begin to trust themselves instead of trusting in God. And this is the result. And you know what? As I go through these, all these won't fit you. But there's enough here, even under the surface, you got to grab onto one and walk away with it and chew it for the week. Can you do that? Okay. But we'll see the picture. When we're sitting here in a very sane way on a Sunday morning, we see the picture. So the first one is personal greed. Let me read, if you would, verses 8 through 10. He says, Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there's no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of the vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but an epiph. So, personal greed is the first cluster of wild grapes. According to the Torah, all the people, according to the Torah, God owned all the promised land. And people were, it was okay for people to own parcels of that land. But what God is speaking to here is the wealthy and powerful people and the smarter people would outmaneuver the poor, uh, uneducated people, and they would take advantage of them and take their parcels of land to enhance their own. And so leaving the poor people and uneducated people with nothing. 
So the issue here is not in buying additional land, but abusing other people to benefit yourself. And they would build these massive houses. Verse 8 says, you see how they said join houses to houses? They'd build these massive houses so they can live alone in isolation and wouldn't have to associate with the common people. Now you and I know just from, just from being in this church alone, isolation doesn't produce less sin, it produces more sin. Community produces less sin. So there's a problem here, no doubt. They wanted more and more and more. And verses 9 and 10 tell us that these huge houses would end up empty because we know the Assyrians are going to come and going to overtake them and burn them to the ground. And that their crops would not produce what they're supposed to produce. God was going to stop that because the Assyrians were coming and would burn their crops as well. Someone said greed is always self-defeating. In some ways, God's people here are concerned more with cash than they are truth. There's a what I call an Old Testament uh, prosperity gospel, right? That's the picture here. Now, when I say prosperity gospel, most of us go, I ain't got to worry about that. And I'm like, no, folks. Every one of us have a small little seed of prosperity gospel in us that can easily be grown to hugeness in our own lives. For example, you pray to God for something. God doesn't come through. And the first thing our response is to be what? To be disappointed with God or critical of God. That's called the seed of prosperity gospel. You don't get what you want when you want from the God you prayed to get it from. It's there. It's there. It's just how much we feed it. When I'm reminded of this picture that he paints here of personal greed, I go back, to, and I won't mention any names, but I go back to my time of working with the Cincinnati Bengals and Reds, and there was a specific player, one of the pro players, had built, spent three years of his life building a 15,000-square-foot home. That's big, right? They had five thousand dollar doors in it in every room from wood from Africa okay it there was a room to at least 20 by 30 that was just a trophy case for his career they got in the house hundreds of acres of land I went there I spent the night in it I got lost in it three floors right <laughs> here's the sad part they lived alone in isolation their sin increased. Affairs and adulteries and drunkenness took place. Their marriage dissolved. They sold the house. And while it was on the market, put the house up for sale, lightning struck the house. And it burned to the ground. Three months, smoke came out of that home. And both their lives are just a mess. That was what came through my head. Personal greed. Second one is pleasure addiction. 11 through 13. He says, Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late in the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp and tambourine and flute and wine in their feast, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or seek the work of His hands. 
The pursuit of drunken intoxication and sensual indulgence brings the loss of spiritual perception and clarity. A life, here's what he's speaking of, a life of more exotic entertainments driven by the pride to not be like normal people. Banquets, parties, nightclub where drunkenness makes them pay no attention to the things of the Lord or his works. They are inflamed with wine instead of being inflamed with the Spirit of God as Paul speaks about in Ephesians 5. Pleasure addiction. Some of you are going, this doesn't apply to me. I want to press this in this culture of amusement that we live in. Pleasure addiction, no matter what form it takes, always has to be doing something fun. Going somewhere with someone and spending money you don't have to do what you can't afford to do. The mindset and heart of living for the weekend. Thank God it's Friday. The next best thing I've got to do. One writer put it this way, when the passion for pleasure has become utmost in a person's life, the passion for God and his truth and his ways are squeezed out. Now, I love to have fun. If you know me, you know I'm telling the truth more than anybody. But we are all in danger of being a pleasure addict. When I thought of this pleasure addiction, I thought about one in seven people in the U.S. will have substance addiction this year. $442 billion. $442 billion is the cost to deal with substance addiction each year in the U.S. It's a cultural problem, and it's also a church problem. And then he goes on to the next one, deliberate rebellion, verses 18 and 19. And for sake of time, I'm not going to read it. This is an easy one. The picture here, you can read on your own, is people, not horses, are harnessed to a heavy wagon, pulling it along because it is full of their sin. So God's people here have not fallen into sin. God's people are not struggling with sin. God's people are not fighting sin. God's people are simply choosing to sin rather than fleeing from it, asking for help and relief from it. They are simply holding it close to them. So they are so deaf, dumb, and blind in their sin, they're not convicted of their sin. <laughs> that is when we know we are in trouble. We're just doing it. And if someone says something to us, we look at them like, what? You talking to me? They're so arrogant in it that in verse 19, you can read on your own, they literally begin to mock God. They begin to say, you won't do anything about it or you can't do anything about it. They're daring God to punish them. Not knowing that punishment is coming soon. Wow. Deliberate sin. I think of this time when I was about eight years old, and I'm jumping on my grandmother's bed. Her name was Mama Pat. And she'd already asked me not to jump on her bed. And she's a sweet, perfect picture of a grandma that you've ever seen in your life. And I'm jumping on her bed. And as I jump, I begin to say, Mama Pat won't spank me. Mama Pat won't spank me. Mama Pat won't spank me. And the next thing I feel is fire on my legs. It felt like a thousand wasps attacking me. 
And I started hollering and screaming and jumping, and she had a switch and was wearing me out. That's what's happening here. God won't spank me. Oh, yes, he will. This is the tragedy of sin. What was once done somewhat innocently or maybe even naively becomes something we must do at whatever cost. Next is twisted perversion. Look at verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. It's called inversion. <laughs> it's an inversion of truth. What is good is bad. What is bad is good. Restraint in our culture is bad. Purity in our culture is bad. Marriage in our culture is bad. Jesus being the only way is bad because it's unloving and it's mean and it's narrow-minded. We, as if as if they do, as they do, redefine sin. We switch the labels. So here God's people are justifying their sin. I'm going to turn the wrong page. No, I didn't. I'm good. Thank you very much. I thought we got a long way to go. And we just short time to get there. God's people here are justifying their sin by demonstrating that their evil is good that darkness is light and bitterness is sweet. I think it takes place. Here's how it takes place. When we refuse to admit and submit to the authority of the Word of God versus our own opinions, that we just stop trusting our own opinions and we say what the book says is what I'm going to go with. Every time and every way. As a matter of fact, Isaiah in verse 24 points to that being the root problem. He says in chapter 5, verse 24, they rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. That's the root. Well, I know God says this, but you know, this is what I think. Really? I'm, I'm done with my opinions. You need me to be done with my opinions. My job is to tell you what God says, not what I think. And that's your job too as a Christian. There is no difference. Someone put it this way, following personal opinions is cheap. Seeking revealed truth is costly. Next, the fifth Cluster of wild, stinky grapes. Self-trusting pride. Verse 21 says, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Lord Jones, the great Lord Jones, says grace thrives when we feel how urgently we need to be saved from ourselves. <laughs> That's when grace thrives. Here there is no grace thriving. Because these people are trusting in themselves. <laughs> they are wiser and more cl clever than God. We have struck the source from where all other sins flow. Here it is, pride. Here's what happens. Sin does not just tell us to do this. 
sin in our mind and hearts gives us reason for doing it. And at the time, they appear wonderful, and we believe it. So we trust in ourselves. I'm reminded of Stephen Hawking. Who knows the name Stephen Hawking? Okay, he, he's brilliant in a worldly way. He's an incredible scientist. But he tr- is an atheist, and he trusts in himself. So he comes up with stuff that you just go, dude, who do you think you are? In all your brilliance, you're really dumb, deaf, and blind. He said just this week, speaking at Oxford, the only way humans escape massive extinction is to move to another planet. Okay. Do you, do you see? And everybody goes, oh, that's wonderful. God says, no, the way humans don't become extinct is to trust in me. And then lastly, the sixth cluster of wild grapes is rest, reckless injustice. Again, I don't have time to read the passages. You can read it. It said the leaders are unjust. This is what it says. He uses the word hero in those two verses. The word hero is equal in Hebrew to the word leader. So the leaders are getting drunk, and here's why. They are trying to escape from reality. They're wealthy. They're powerful. They have everything you can imagine. But it's not enough. Because it doesn't satisfy their souls. So they get drunk, and in their drunkenness, they take advantage of the poor. And they, they do these uh, illegal bribes, and they are unjust with those who don't have what they have. Reckless injustice. There's two therefores in verse 24 and 25. Simply means... It's an announcement of God's judgment for the sins mentioned since verse 8. And then lastly, these last uh, five verses, 26 through 30. Let me read those to you as we end up. It's the purifying pain of grace. And what I mean by that? I mean that it's purifying. God is going to purify his people, and it's going to be painful when he does. When he does it in our life, when he does it in their life. And here's what I mean. It's still grace. It's grace because he didn't kill them all. (laughs) It's grace that he kept his remnant. It's grace that he didn't break his covenant with the people of God. It's grace that you and I still know this God. See, but he's going to purify his people. He is committed to conforming them into his image. And he says here, he introduces a theme that the nations in, in these verses, the nations of the earth are simply an investment in the Lord's hands, that it is upon his signal that nations rise and fall and move. That's a theme in Isaiah, that God is in control of all the nations. And here's what he says. Verse 26, he will raise a signal for nations afar off and whistle them for the ends of the earth. The Syrians come and attack Israel. And what happens? They do what he says do. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles. Here's a picture of speed and power. When he whistles, he tells a nation to attack another, it happens. 
None slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose. Not a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp. Their bows bent. Their horses' hoofs seem like flint. And their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion. Like young lions, they roar, they growl, they seize their prey, they carry it off, and none can rescue. They will growl over it until that day, like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. So there's a purifying pain of grace. I want to remind us, as bad as it is here, And as bad as it could get with any of us, Paul tells us because of Christ that our sin will never be greater than God's grace. That he loves us so much, he will come after us. He will do what he needs to do. We may experience loss, but that's so we may experience gain. And that gain is him. And he tells us in John 15, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. That's why he takes us through the purifying pain by his grace. Take a minute this morning to ask the question, so what? There's a lot there. There's God's great kindness to you. How? And maybe here's the question for all of us. How have we specifically abused the grace of God in our life? (laughs) His kindness to us. I really do think, for I know from my own heart, when I see His kindness to us, I sin less, I worship more, I walk around with a heart of gratitude. It's a game changer. So ask that question this morning as you ask the question, so what?